Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we're going to continue with our kind of uh, unplanned episodes on COVID. We did one uh, last, a few days ago, kind of an overview. We had the privilege of talking to Dr. Nokoti, who's in Italy. Um, so we got to learn a little bit about what they're going through and what we can learn from that. And what we want to focus on today is uh, the management of the airways primarily in these people. And so I have with me one of our fantastic faculty here at Johns Hopkins, who has been very involved with developing our approach to managing the hypoxemia and the airway management in these patients uh, as we see them here and in developing guidelines that are certainly being shared and uh, and used across uh, quite a wide area as he works with people in different institutions. So uh, Dr. Alexei Pustovoitau, uh, who is a great colleague and really involved, I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you, Jan. So uh, I want to just remind everybody that due to COVID, the live in-person ACRAC uh, podcast is, that we were going to have on April 24th is being rescheduled for another time once hopefully we get through this uh, period we will let you know so if you were planning on coming stay tuned we will let you know when that's going to be let's jump in um, and Alexi tell me uh, how do people tend to present let's just kind of start at the beginning when people have COVID I mean certainly there are people who uh, don't have any symptoms uh, but if people are going to be symptomatic what do they tend to have and how do they present when we see them in the hospital so there is, there is the whole spectrum of how people present, and some of the greatest guidance we've been provided is by our Italian colleagues. And in, in fact, uh, they have a concept of phenotypes. Uh, um, the uh, document we have is coming from Dr. Stefano Paglia, uh, who is a medical director in Lodi, Milan. And uh, they divide it into uh, various phenotypes, and this is consistent with our early observations in these patients. The, the least sick patients, they just febrile, usually no respiratory symptoms, and they generally can be just discharged from the emergency room. And as the disease gets more severe, ERDS or lung inflammatory changes are the most common. So they start becoming more hypoxemic and develop consolidations. And uh, consolidations can be all visualized on chest X-ray, uh, lung ultrasound, or CAT scan. Um, 
And those patients probably would need to be admitted and observed because if they do deteriorate, they deteriorate fast. Yeah. Uh, so these are patients who are presenting with upper respiratory symptoms like cough, sore throat, in addition to the fever, sometimes hypoxemia. And hypoxemia and dyspnea in particular. So one of the ways also to look at them if they can walk uh, 20 yards or so, right? So if they can walk without developing hypoxemia, they probably safe to be discharged and they would fall into phenotype one. However, if they start developing hypoxemia, they probably may need to be admitted. And okay. especially okay. if they have uh, baseline dyspnea when you just talk to them. And phenotype one is the people who, as you said, maybe fever, no other symptoms, can go home. How many additional phenotypes are there? Is it just one and two, or there, or do they break down those who are in the hospital into different ones? Three through five, right? So phenotype five, for example, is ERDS, right? Okay. And where all the admitted to critical care and managed correspondingly. Um, phenotype three is when you start getting hypoxemia and you may need support, right? So originally recommended to have, for example, face mask up to 15 liters of oxygen, uh, whereas we largely start looking into um, using high-flow nasal cannula in these patients. And the phenotype 4 is uh, pre-ARDS. So why that scheme is is important, it helps uh, place patients uh, in the appropriate location. So according to Italian colleagues, actually phenotype 2 is well need to be admitted and it's much more common than the ones who require ICU management. And in fact, they, they stated that it's about 20 times more common than the ones who need intensive care. Okay, so phenotype 1 can go home. Phenotype 2 needs to be admitted, but probably on the floor they don't need uh, constant monitoring. Is that right? That's that's uh, correct. And then phenotype three, you said, is now we're getting to need some sort of support, uh, oxygen, maybe even high flow nasal cannula. Phenotype four is pre ARDS, and phenotype five is is florid ARDS. Okay, so let's talk about um, the uh, when we have someone who we are interacting with who either has confirmed or suspected uh, COVID. We want to be very careful. We need to protect ourselves as healthcare providers. So, how are we doing that? What's the appropriate uh, personal protective equipment to wear when interacting with? And let's put intubation aside for a minute. If you're just going in to do, let's say, a physical exam, listen to the heart and lungs on one of these patients, what do you need to be wearing? So, currently, our recommendations, which evolve as uh, as we learn more, also is uh, to have either N95 mask with a face shield or a paper and uh, extra gown and two pairs of gloves. Okay. That's for the regular care of these patients. And then ideally uh, we would have an observer, right, so that we can have someone telling us whether we're putting on and taking this stuff off appropriately? Correct. So the observer would be vital for both donning and doffing, because uh, largely this is a droplet precaution, however, and the uh, prevention of aerosol uh, uh, generation is the most important thing. So doffing or taking off PPE is, is actually becomes of utmost importance. Right. And you said something that I just want to echo, which is that this is 
constantly changing and getting updated. And so I should have said all the way up front that the caveat for all of this is we're trying to get this information out because it may be helpful for people. But please know that even by the time you listen to this, even if it's just a few hours or days after we record it, things could have changed. So you can take this as an example of of where things stand on March 21st, but uh, things will change. And so before you do anything, before you act on anything we're saying here, obviously check with your local um, infection control folks and your intensivists to make sure that you're uh, both doing what your hospital system wants you to be doing and up to date because as I said, this is changing very quickly. All right. But for now, Alexia, as you said, we're going to be wearing either an N95 or a papper as well as uh, double gowning, double gloving. Um, okay. That's just to go in and see these patients. So if this is a uh, tier and two, it, yeah, go ahead. And, and a caveat for, for N95, of course, make sure it's uh, you fit to wear it and wear it with a face shield. Right. Now, uh, we, I guess the flip side of this is that for patients who are not suspected to have uh, COVID, we really don't want to be wearing N95s because there is a, a national shortage. And, you know, we've, I got some emails even just this morning from colleagues at, uh, especially on the West Coast, where they're having to improvise the best they can to come up with something like an N95 because they've already run out. So we do want to conserve them and use them only for what we call PUIs person under investigation or uh, who may have COVID and then obviously confirm COVID. Uh, is that right? We really want to conserve the, the respirators for them. And of course, you'd use them where you would have always used them for TB, TB patients, et cetera. Correct. So when you, when you have a high prevalence uh, in population, um, anyone can be suspected. However, a patient is completely asymptomatic with no respiratory symptoms. Regular mask and Possibly face shield is more than enough at this point. Once they start having respiratory symptoms, then adding uh, pr- protective gear becomes important. Okay. So we talked about phenotype 1. They, they're going to go home. Phenotype 2, you have in the hospital. When you're interacting with them, you need to use this equipment, but we're hoping they'll be okay even without any supplemental oxygen. Now we get into phenotype 3. They need support. So they're going to be presumably on either an uh, IMC level floor or uh, in a, even in an ICU um, or, I guess, any a floor where they can get monitoring and supplemental oxygen. Is that right? That's correct. Now, uh, same thing in terms of being careful with these patients, but some things we might do normally that we're at least changing, right? So let's say that one of these patients has bronchospasm. We're not going to do nebulizers, right, in these patients? Preferences to use MDIs. The uh, the issue is becoming now there is a national shortage in uh, MDIs. And an and MDI they- is a meter dose inhaler, right? So this is the thing that people walk around with and take a puff on their own. Correct. The uh, 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 the good thing that in general they do not usually require al- albuterol atrovent, the bronchodilating medications. Um, However, if they have underlying COPD, that, that is definitely a consideration. And a special measures should, should be taken to deliver those medications. And in fact, we advocate to have very strict criteria on using bronchodilating medications in those patients. Okay. So avoid if possible. If you have to do it, use an MDI meter dose inhaler if you can. And if you absolutely have no choice and have to do a nebulized treatment, then you really need to take some extra precautions. Correct. With the underlying principle of really minimizing aerosolizing uh, the virus, if if um, trying to use uh, closed uh, systems, it becomes 
a little bit different when someone is intubated versus non-intubated. And for non-intubated patients, it's um, we advocate to try to minimize to none. Right. And then the same would go uh, for anything that could, could aerosolize. So we really want to try to avoid bronchoscopies on these people. Uh, anything else that we would normally maybe consider on someone having respiratory distress that we wouldn't do in these patients? So we're minimizing also use of CPAP and BiPAP uh, unless you have good system of uh, filtering the ex- exhaled um, air because the flows are extremely high, so aerosolization potential is very high. Right. Even if you have a filter, there is still a problem of proper mask fitting. So you have to fulfill both of those conditions to perform it safely. However, no, it may be rescue therapy, and uh, that may be the only choice. Then, again, wearing protective PPE becomes of utmost importance. Right. Now, uh, I know in Europe they're using helmet CPAP, which is a way that you can do CPAP and avo- and still have a closed system for the exhaled air. Um, we don't have that available here as far as I know. Is, have you, are you aware of any talk about trying to get a hold of those or use them or not? So they are not approved currently. So, I mean, people definitely are lo- looking into that or have an expedited approval as, as again, as a backup therapy is sent to our parents. Okay. So for our patients now, we have... Uh, if they need oxygen, we're going to give them a nasal cannula, and that can go all the way up. You said we'll even go as high as 15, although often we feel like that you know, may dry out the nasal passages a little too much. But we go basically, regular nasal cannula, you can try. Then if, that's, if they're still hypoxemic on maximal standard nasal cannula treatment, we're not going to do BiPAP and CPAP, as you said, unless it's you know, just really an absolute last resort. So we're going to go to high-flow nasal cannula. Uh, if we're doing high-flow nasal cannula, any idea? Do we go higher flow, higher FiO2, both? Is there any difference between managing these patients on a high-flow nasal cannula versus a, a, a standard hypoxemic patient? So currently we recommend uh, to use a regular surgical uh, face mask over high-flow cannula also to minimize uh, aerosolization of the virus. And second thing, we have established trigger somewhere in the range of 40 liters, per minute flow, and 40 to 50% of oxygen is, is a trigger for medicine to start activating airway teams. And uh, the intensivist who is on call 24-7 currently to, to initiate discussions on intubating those patients. All right. So we're going to go ahead and dial up the FiO2 and the flow, but when we hit certain triggers, uh, so you said 30 to 40 liters of flow, and how much FiO2? 40 to 50 so not so so still fairly low. So we, in other words, you're starting early. You don't want to let these patients max out at 100% FiO2 and 60 liters of flow, and then start thinking about intubation. Is that right? Correct. It, it's the uh, idea behind this is to prevent uh, uncontrolled situation if intubation is required. And secondary, I mean, if you, by calculation, the PF ratio at, uh, at those. Uh, rates and FiO2 is going to be close to 200, which is start hitting the uh, ARDS range. Right. Okay. So we have a high-flow nasal cannula with a mask over it, as you said, and, and uh, just a surgical mask to try to prevent some of the aerosolization. And then at fairly early, if that's not cutting it, if we're ramping that up, we're going to go ahead and move to intubation. Now, 
obviously this is a high risk procedure in these patients. Some of this is starting early with the planning, like you said, so that we don't end up with a panicked stat intubation. What are we doing differently in terms of our personal protective equipment when we're intubating these patients um, as opposed to just going in to do an exam? So unlike re- regular exam uh, in this situation, we still PAPR is the preferred modality. If we do run out of PAPRs, where N95 mask with a face shield is a, is the second choice. Um, person would wear two gowns and uh, three pair of gloves. Okay, so three pairs of gloves because one is going to come off immediately uh, after the tube goes in and wrap around the laryngoscope. And then you've still got two on, which you would always have two on when you are in these rooms. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So you've got your, uh, ideally your papper or an N95 and a face shield. You've got your double gowns, your triple gloves. Um, All right. And you've got your your observer to make sure you're doing it right. So you're going to get everything together. Uh, What else do we want to keep in in mind as we're getting ready to intubate these patients? So... so the way the system uh, works, uh, the medicine service activates uh, the intensivist on call, and who may dispatch the airway team to intubate uh, the patient early. And in preparation, there is another person to su- to support intubation. There is an RT in the room, and there is a uh, nurse in the room. The other communication that happens, uh, medicine team would prepare actually in, in norepinephrine to do hemodynamically support the patient as well as sedation. So this is just in preparation for that. All the equipment uh, has to be assembled ahead of time because one caveat when you put a Don uh, pepper on communication between providers is somewhat limited because of the airflow flow within the uh, hood. Right. So we're going to have uh, everything ready. We're going to have our team ready to go in. Once we've decided on a plan, we're going to go in. And then what about the approach to intubation? Uh, are we do- we're doing RSIs in these patients for the most part? So preference is to use video laryngoscopy. And the preference is do- to do RSI in uh, these patients. So, again, the idea is the same as for any airway interventions, is to prevent uh, aerosols entering the air. Right. So we're going to limit or try to avoid mask ventilation completely, uh, which for a lot of people I think have been moving towards, especially in ICU intubations after the trial that was published in the New England Journal, to try to uh, consider doing, even for RSIs, doing some mask ventilation. But with these patients, we really are going to try to minimize or eliminate that we are going to uh, try to get that tube in as quickly as possible, like you said, to uh, eliminate or minimize the time where virus can be aerosolized. And, and, and because we're advocating really for relatively early intubation, we will have time to pre-oxygenate the person adequately. Usually we would use face mask attached to ambu bag without any positive pressure supported breaths and right. uh, give them good lead time to do that. The, the main thing is that you need lots of time to prepare adequately, protect yourself, and plan how you intubate uh, the patient. Right. And are we using video laryngoscopy because we just want to maximize the success rate and we think that that's a little little better, or is there another reason? It's a maximized success rate, 
as well as you have more direct confirmation of where the tube goes in, which uh, depending on uh, the environment, you may it may serve actually as a confirmation that the tube is in the airway. Right, as opposed to having to contaminate a stethoscope. And stethoscope in itself is is a little bit uh, difficult to use with paper mask. So right. the, what we've been using is a combination of uh, um, visualization where, where the tube goes in, as well as lung ultrasound to see if uh, there is bilateral lung sliding. Right. Um, and uh, with combination of those two, we can more, more or less precisely say where the tube is. The thing is, if uh, we do decide to confirm it with the entitled CO2, we may end up using calorimetric, or, and if we do so, we usually would clamp the tube. So, in fact, if we have to have planned the disconnections of the circuit, there is no escape uh, uh, of aerosol from the patient. Right. Okay. So what about a viral filter? When we're, we're trying to avoid mask ventilation, are we putting a viral filter on the end of the uh, mask if just for the breathing, just for the pre-oxygenation, or are we doing that only if, we're gonna, if we have decided to mask ventilate? No, we, we put it in line uh, all along. So and, uh, if we do need to ventilate the patient, it's already in place. So okay. It, okay. those filters are readily available throughout respiratory care. Okay. So you mentioned disconnects. So let's say we uh, we get the endotracheal tube in, we secure it, and we realize, oh, you know, we forgot to put inline suction in and we want that, uh, or we forgot our, our hookup for our end tidal CO2. If we have to disconnect a patient who's connected, we obviously, as you alluded to, don't want to just leave the endotracheal tube open to spew virus out into the room. So you mentioned clamping. So we're going to, anytime we have to disconnect the patient, we're going to clamp uh, the tube itself. Is that right? And the tracheal tube using surgical clamp. Okay. And, and are we wrapping it with some gauze to try to avoid damage to the tube? Correct. Okay. So we're going to wrap some gauze, put a, a surgical clamp on it. Now, obviously, if the patient really tries to breathe hard against that closed uh, tube, we could end up with some uh, complications like negative pressure pulmonary edema, but we're thinking that uh, we're going to do this quickly and hopefully avoid that. That is correct. But also during intubation with adequate muscle relaxation, there is sufficient lead time to do those maneuvers. Right. Okay. So if we're using, and are we preferentially using rock or succinyl, rocuronium or succinylcholine or it doesn't matter? Uh, Present, we use uh, succinylcholine because it, based on the human behavior, sometimes uh, people just don't have enough patience uh, to, to wait. And succinylcholine provides a relatively visual uh, confirmation that patient is adequately relaxed because inadequate relaxation can actually lead to more coughing and, and fighting the intubation and, again, uh, spewing the virus into the uh, room environment. Okay. So if we need to disconnect, we're going to clamp. And then the other thing is obviously the other end, right? So if you disconnect, you now, if you leave the ventilator running, then virus that was circulating in that circuit is now going to get pumped out into the room, right? So you also want to make sure to turn the vent off? Correct. And uh, this is the reason to have the respiratory therapist uh, in the room. 
Okay. So let's go back to our patient. We've now, uh, early on, we went to high-flow nasal cannula. Then that was uh, escalating our, our flow in our FiO2. So we said, we're not going to wait. We're going to move to intubation. We got our intubation equipment ready. We went in with our appropriate PPE, and we placed the endotracheal tube and hooked them up to the circuit. Uh, in my prior podcast that I did with um, the folks from Penn in Italy, we talked about early nutrition in these people. So probably when you're putting in an, uh, when you're putting in an endotracheal tube, you're going to want to put in an OG tube as well. Is that something that we're, we're trying to do at the same time, or is that happening uh, later? It happens pretty much simultaneously because we're strongly advocating, strongly advocating for early nutrition in these patients. Okay. So we've got the tube in. What kind of settings are we doing here? What kind of vent management are we putting in place? So vent management follows ARDS uh, network uh, guidelines uh, to as pr- for protective flum ventilation. So we're going to try to keep 6 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight. Uh, we are going to try to keep plateau pressures less than 30. What kind of PEEP are we using uh, with these patients? So not infrequently, these patients need higher PEEP. But uh, despite that, their compliance re- remains relatively well-preserved. Okay. So we think that part of this disease process is loss of surfactant from damage to type 2 pneumocytes uh, from this virus attacking them. And so uh, that would make sense that PEEP to keep those airways that may struggle to remain open would be helpful. Um, is there, are we using a specific uh, kind of guided table to match FiO2 with PEEP? Are we calculating driving pressure and adjusting PEEP to maximize or, or to, I guess, minimize driving pressure? How are we doing that? So in, in uh, talking to our medicine colleagues, uh, we still uh, the preference is still to use uh, um, FiO2 and PEEP table provided by RDS network. And as we learn more, we may choose the scale that advocates for higher PEEP. Currently, though, we're still going to be uh, following the, the RDS network provided table. Okay, so that's the kind of what, what a lot of people refer to as standard PEEP. And then there's also this other one you, you mentioned, kind of the high PEEP, uh, which would have higher PEEP for a given level of, of FiO2. But for us, at least so far, we're sticking to the standard PEEP. And then maybe there's some leeway around looking at driving pressure and raising PEEP a little to see if that lowers the driving pressure. And that's correct. I mean, we advocate to have uh, driving pressure, which is uh, plateau pressure minus P, to less than 14 centimeters of water. Right. And so uh, we've done some episodes on this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But obviously, if you have a plateau pressure, uh, just to make this easy, if you have a plateau pressure of 30 and a PEEP of 10, then your driving pressure is 20. If you went up to a PEEP of 12 and your uh, plateau pressure didn't change, you now have a plateau pressure of 30 and a PEEP of 12, well, then your driving pressure has come down to 18, and so that's a good change. And so sometimes going up on PEEP can uh, reduce your driving pressure without affecting your plateau pressure, and that would be, a, we would think, a good change. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. All right. So 
you mentioned before that we're using uh, ultrasound to take a look at the lungs. It can be helpful to confirm endotracheal tube placement. Certainly, you can get a feel for the consolidations. Um, are we? You, you also, I think, before we started recording, you mentioned to me also taking a look at the hearts on these patients. And obviously, one thing we're hearing in reports from China and Italy and other places is that sometimes uh, these patients are getting some significant cardiomyopathy, even ending up with cardiac arrest, uh, maybe even after they started recovering from a respiratory standpoint. So are you screening these patients for uh, any signs of cardiomyopathy or is there, are you waiting for other symptoms that might clue you in that you need to take a look at the heart? How are we approaching that? So at present, we're actually sending tri- troponin level on, in this patient as part of screening. It doesn't have to be daily. We also advocate if you are using ultrasound for any other reason, for example, for procedural support, can place ultrasound at least into subcostal position and visualize what's happening with the heart because so far we've seen that uh, patients start developing uh, pericarditis early and definitely based on reported experiences with myocarditis uh, or with reduced uh, ejection fraction uh, can be a later complication. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense to keep an eye on it. Um, So... Let me back up a second to the to the vent management here. So ARDS management. Now, these patients are potentially, uh, I think, often very with it, right? I mean, they've got, they've got hypoxemia, but they don't have anything affecting their brain necessarily. And so, um, you know, these are not patients who are going to probably like uh, a mandatory volume control ventilation mode without sedation. So are we sedating them to keep them on volume control? Are we putting them on pressure support and watching their tidal volumes? What's the approach here? So general approach, once you reach the levels of uh, more aggressive support in terms of low, because of the demand, low PF ratio, we do sedate them, and uh, we do do AC, and pronin has been vital, actually. Patients would be prone for extended periods of time. Okay, so proning, obviously that means taking someone instead of on their back, putting them on their belly um, with the endotracheal tube in place, and that can be uh, for the entire day. Uh, is, lot, do we, is there a mandatory amount of time? How, how long are we leaving people prone? And um, being a median prolonged period of time is 18 to 24 hours. Okay. Okay. So people can remain prone for uh, essentially the whole day if it's working. If you flip them back on their back and they get profoundly worse, then you would potentially uh, go back to prone. Potentially, if it's a life-threatening hypoxemia. Alternatively, again, to minimize our, our isolation, and then not de- not deliver inhaled uh, bronchodilators is some, something like prostaglandins. Use of nitric oxide can be tried, although not necessarily always effective. Okay, so nitric oxide in severe hypoxemia is a possibility. Uh, we're not using inhaled uh, valetri because of the concern for aerosolization. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so. Let's say uh, you have a patient severely hypoxemic. They're intubated. As you said, we're going to try proning. Other things, what about neuromuscular blockers? So neuromuscular blockers are in, in the same line as pronin. It definitely can be considered if, uh, despite those maneuvers, patients still have substantial dyssynchrony or if hypoxemia remains refractory. Okay. Now, 
we have a patient who is severely hypoxemic, maybe some neuromuscular blockade, in which case they clearly need sedation. Even if they're not being uh, being paralyzed with neuromuscular blockade, they still, in order to keep them uh, compliant on the vent, not double uh, taking double breaths, not breath stacking, uh, are going to, as you said, need sedation. If they're getting sedation probably with propofol, then they're probably also going to need, or at least very likely may need some vasopressor support because of the vasodilation from the propofol. So I assume that a lot of these patients are intubated on a propofol drip and probably a levofedrip, uh, norepinephrine drip. Is that right? Probably not, not an infrequent uh, um, finding in these patients. Okay. And one thing I would like to add about pronin, we do not view pronin as a salvage maneuver. We actually view it as a lung protective maneuver and advocate for early utilization of this. Okay, right. So this is not, yeah, I think you're exactly right that some people think of this as you've done everything else, you're kind of, the patient is, is you know, desatting uh, to a dangerous point on, on full maximum treatment and then the salvage is to try proning. But as you say, we really want this to be part of the standard treatment. Okay, you mentioned to me before that we're seeing some hypercoagulability in these patients. Tell me a little about that. So there are reports now coming out of uh, other countries' experience that a pulmonary embolism um, may be a big problem in this and one of the causes of mortality. In uh, some patients where uh, Italians in particular report high levels of D-dimer, and uh, in, in several patients now where um, there are reports of hyperfibrinogenemia, so high fibrinogen. Uh, pardon my uh, uh, tongue being uh, uh, <laughs> twisted. That's yeah. all, yes, a little yeah. twisted. And uh, we, one of at least one of the patients we looked at here sent a thromboelastogram, which also completes the hypercoagulable profile. So the interesting question is how aggressive uh, we should be with anticoagulating those. And uh, some of the Italian colleagues actually advocate for full heparinization of those patients. Not sure how much evidence-based data supports that, but anecdotally, that may be actually a beneficial intervention in these patients. And aggressive DVT prophylaxis uh, is a great consideration in this patient population. Okay, yeah, so it's just like nutrition, got to be on top of that, got to be on top of the DVT prophylaxis. So that's really important to know. It'll be interesting to see as more data comes out from uh, other countries that are a little ahead of us uh, in terms of the time course, whether that's uh, a trend that continues. So let's talk about the um, if, uh, you know, and hopefully we're not seeing this often, but if we do have to do CPR, if we have a cardiac arrest and we have to do CPR in these patients, are we altering the traditional CPR algorithm in any way? The, the answer is yes. Um, in a way, uh, more so for in-hospital but it's still become is the uh, algorithm is still in compliance with the out of hospital cardiac arrest. So chest compressions take a priority over everything else. And again, with the idea to minimize uh, viral viral spread, chest compressions are performed by the first responder until the second responder is available and can uh, rotate. And patient may receive. Uh, uh, free-flowing oxygen via face mask initially until intubating team is able to actually place the uh, endotracheal tube. 
Okay. So the big difference is uh, normally in in-hospital cardiac arrest, we would give breaths along with chest compressions. But with these patients, we're not doing the breaths, just trying to get that breathing tube in as quickly as possible to have a closed circuit. Um, okay. And, and then we do emphasize that uh, all providers responding should, should be in uh, PPE for that. So if some if arrest for example happens while provider is outside of the room, the provider still has to put it PPE. Right, and I think we've recently gone to considering all codes and rapid response calls in our hospital. We're going to assume our uh, COVID uh, suspected. So even if the patient wasn't before having an arrest or before being, you know, uh, having whatever happened that causes the rapid response to be called, uh, we're going to assume that they should be treated as if they are a COVID rule out. In other words, if you get, if we get called to a room uh, on a floor, patient was not being suspected for COVID, but now they've gotten, you know, severely hypoxemic or they've had a cardiac arrest and they need to be intubated, we're going to do it as if they were a COVID patient. Patient, right, we're not going to we're going to use a, a appropriate either a PAP or N95 with a face mask. That is correct. Okay, so uh, let's talk briefly about treatments, and this is probably you know the the biggest question mark. We just don't know yet, but I think people are hearing a lot of things about you know hydroxychloroquine, about convalescent serum, uh, about steroids. I think steroids are the easy one, right? We know that steroids don't work in these patients. That's our agreement. Uh here that, in, in fact, it, they may be harmful in viral pneumonias. Right. So we're not giving steroids. Uh, what about hydroxychloroquine? Uh, is that something that is being investigated? Is it being used? What do we know about it? So we know from reports and uh, small studies, usually in not randomized, uh, not uh, large volume studies, that they may decrease uh, viral shedding or shorten time to viral shedding. Um, at this point, we're still not recommending it for our patients. However, we have a close eye on the evolving literature and follow it closely. Okay. And there are discussions on a case-by-case basis in, uh, because our infectious disease specialists have uh, greater experience in um, greater grasp also on the totality of literature at this point. We strongly advocate to involve them in the shared decision making. Okay, so basically, we don't have a lot of great treatments other than supportive care yet. Obviously, a lot of work being done. People are working on vaccines. People are trying different antivirals. So that will be something that's rapidly changing. How long? Do these patients tend to need support? It's a while, right? We're not talking about a, a kind of a couple-day acute period, right? We're looking at kind of many days to weeks of needing to be on a ventilator? It, based on the reports from uh, Chinese colleagues, it, it appears that two to three weeks is more is expected time uh, to have those patients on the ventilator support. Okay. And are they getting trached at all? Are they getting tracheostomies or no? They're just remaining with a, a standard endotracheal tube. That is a good question. So to which we, at this point, don't have a good answer. We, we have discussions both ways. I mean, if you're predicting that the uh, patients will remain in the ventilator for extended period of time, maybe early tracheostomy is beneficial. However, it's a high aerosol-generating procedure. So we're in close discussions with our surgical colleagues at this point. Definitely, we're not going to start discussions until at least two weeks on the ventilator at this point. Okay. 
and ECMO. ECMO, we're kind of taking on a case-by-case basis. Uh, we haven't ruled it out for these patients completely, but certainly don't have the ability to put every severe COVID patient on an ECMO circuit. Is that right? It's a, on case-by-case basis following the guidelines. Okay. Well, Alexi, this has been an incredibly informative uh, discussion. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you think is important to get across? I think that's pretty much it. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy. Thanks for all you're doing, uh, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Jared. All right. Hopefully that was useful. This is a protocol that is constantly in flux, but it's what we're using for now and hopefully will be helpful to folks out there trying to develop your own protocols. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment and others can learn from you. So let us know what you're doing, how you're improvising, how you are developing protocols. Also, you can join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And of course, there's a Facebook group for ACRAC as well. Let us know if you're a fan of the show. You can go to iTunes and leave a comment and a rating, and that also helps others find the show. If you are a fan of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC or leave a donation at paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thanks so much to those who have done that already. It really makes a big difference. And, of course, a huge thank you to Kimmy Akash Cooley, our intern, and to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who are making great outlines for some of the episodes. And a big thank you to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed the original ACRAC music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, the biggest thank you, of course, goes to all of you who are out there dealing with this every day on the front lines. Hang in there, stay healthy, stay safe. Thanks for listening. For the Agrag Podcast and Dr. Alexei Pustavoytow, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.